Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Last week, um, Mark mentioned last week, right before I got up and started, obviously we've been going through this, uh, this Wednesday night class, fortifying our faith has kind of been the theme that we've been discussing. Uh, and again, not to over-recap you here, but Mark discussed some things earlier on, some, some apologetics type things, some Christian evidences uh, type material, and then Tom Collier came in and talked a little bit more scientific uh, areas. Again, it's something within the apologetic type of realm also. And then I am wrapping up last week, and then this week will be the last week within this class discussing the culture and kind of being a New Testament Christian within 21st century culture. So last week, with that in mind, we discussed certain things within the culture as a whole that are out out there, so to speak, in the culture. Um, How we as Christians should view them. how we should go about having discussions about them, a variety of different areas, kind of, but, but it was kind of the out there cultural stuff. This week, to kind of wrap this up, again, trying to do this in, in a two-week time period, and really you could spend a long, you could spend a long time, and you could spend a whole quarter, you could probably spend an entire year talking about the culture and how it affects us as Christians, how we as Christians should, should try to affect the culture that we live in. But within two weeks, uh, trying to fit that in. So last week was about the stuff out there. This week I'm going to kind of try to talk about the stuff, quote-unquote, in here, so to speak, when it comes to the culture. So beginning with this, and I'll be honest with you, I have, for this first little part, it is not in my notes at all. I had nothing written down about it. But as I was reading through some stuff today, uh, I added it. So I'm going to ad-lib here for a little bit from the beginning when it comes to cultural things. And what I mean by that when I say in here, okay, cultural stuff that is in here. I mean, to a certain extent within the building. I mean, within the congregation of the Lord's people. And how we need to make sure that the culture in the 21st century that we live in doesn't come in and affect certain things that we do, certain things involving our worship, certain things involving uh, how we attend, how we go about sharing the truth, evangelizing. And even, to kind of kick things off here, the things we go about saying. Because I think to a certain extent, that when it comes to our culture, we need to be careful the words we use and the definitions by which we define them. And what do I mean by that? Christian. Christian is a very specific word. It means a very specific thing. The culture in which we live uses it much more broadly than it is meant to be used. Christian, of course, is those who are followers of Christ. They are members of his church, the one church, the scriptural church that is discussed in the New Testament. They are a specific set of people that are described within the New Testament. They have been the same since the first century church was established there in Acts chapter 2. They're the same today. But the term within our culture is very broadly used. Christian within the culture is anyone who may or may not believe in Christ. 
that he exists. That he exists, I should clarify that. Because believing in him is a little different thing as well. But they say, well, you're a Christian because I believe in Christ, that Christ exists. Or, or they will use this phrase, I'm a believer. Okay, and I think we need to be leery first off, when you want to talk about how the culture affects us in here, we need to be leery about how we allow the culture and the world's definition of words to affect how we use them. Okay, because Christian is a very specific set of people. But the world uses it broadly. And this is an example I'll give just briefly. Okay, people often, and they do it from the pulpit, they do it from things that they write. I've done it before. Not a bad thing. They quote people like, for example, C.S. Lewis. Great man, I think. Didn't know him. Seemed to be a great man. Great writer. I love to read the things that he writes. He writes many wonderful things. He does. And they'll say, well, you know, you had C.S. Lewis who was an atheist or an agnostic. I don't remember exactly which of the two. And then he became a Christian. But he did not become a Christian, C.S. Lewis. He became a, a believer in God. But that's not what a Christian is. And again, we could dive into this. I know we could spend the next 45 minutes talking about this one specific point, but for time's sake, we're going to discuss things further. But we need to be careful how we don't talk about how someone like that, for example, is a Christian, simply because they believe that God exists. That's the cultural definition of it. That's the worldly definition of what Christian is. Church is the same way. And again, I'm guilty of this to an extent, but we need to, and I've tried to be, I've tried to be more cognitive and better about it, we need to be aware of, of how we use these words. That we tell our children, for example, that tomorrow we're going to go to church. Well, we're not really going to church. We're going to worship with the church. Right? But, and again, I know that's, that's, it's traditional and it's normal, and I'm not saying, boy, you're just a terrible person, you've been doing this. But I'm saying we need to try to break ourselves of these habits because the world says this is a church, and that one down the road is a church, and the one down the road from them is a church, but that's not what the Bible says. That's what the culture has told us. So we need to try to be better with how we go about describing these things to our children, for example, to people we talk to. What church do you go to? Well, I worship here. With, I could say, the Church of Christ that meets at West Huntsville, for example. But it's not in the denominational sense that so many people use. And again, I had no notes for that part. All right, that's not how I intended to open up tonight, but as I was reading through some things today, we see that used often. We see words that are used, and that's just to church, uh, Christian. Again, we could spend an entire list of things. I had a class with a college group not that long ago in which we talked about I, for lack of a better title, I guess, words matter. Okay, the fact that certain words scripturally have definitions that the world misdefines. Okay, and how we need to get back to defining them, how the Bible defines them. And we can't let how the culture defines things affect how we do things here, so to speak. All right, so I open with, with that when it comes to just those type things. And, and from there, I'll, I'll try to get back on my pace with my notes here. Another thing that we need to make sure that the culture doesn't affect, and it's, it's our worship. It's our worship. A lot of people within the world are looking to be relevant with their worship. And I use that word specifically. Okay, they're looking to be relevant. You see these type of things all the time. All right, there's a reason that some of these massive megachurches 
Again, I just used the word wrong, didn't I? These massive mega denominations, these groups of people who gather together, come in and they say, hey, we're going to have this and that and the other, and we're going to do it so we can be relevant. There was, I, kid you, I kid you not, it was not that long ago, a year or two ago maybe, I was somewhere on the internet, some social media site probably, and there was a gentleman around the time of March Madness, Hey, I like March Madness. I enjoy watching some college basketball. But they had transformed their stage into a, into a basketball court, full-size basketball court. They had goals on each end. He's preaching and going between the legs, spinning the ball on his finger, if he, preaching if that's what you want to call it. He's saying some things. And all of this is in an effort to be relevant. We see this happen around big times of the year, Easter, Christmas, there was one they said, hey, you need to come to our services this Easter. We're going to have, the, you know, the Easter Bunny's going to be there. We're going to have great family photos. We're going to have a helicopter egg drop. And we're going to have a message I can't wait to tell you. So there, at the very end, we might have, there's going to be some time in which I share some of the word with you, so to speak. But all of this is in an effort to be relevant. And I use that word specifically because, oddly enough, this is the definition. Again, let's use words properly. The definition of relevant is this, bearing upon or connected with the matter at hand, pertinent. So if I am bearing upon or connected with the matter at hand, what I'm supposed to do when I'm here would be to worship God. And if I'm trying to be relevant, but yet I do all of these other bells and whistles, I'm not actually being relevant to my purpose of why I'm here. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, are people more content to be relevant with the culture or relevant with the word? Because most of these larger, big-time denominations, and they're growing, and they're growing vastly. And I know what you may be thinking. That's not us. But see, that's not us. But here's the problem. Many of the people there used to be us, and now they're them. Because they were chasing relevance that wasn't actually relevant. Not to the scripture, not to the word, not to what we're supposed to be doing. All right? They were looking for something else. They were looking for something that was a little bit more fun. And at the end of the day, if the gospel is not why you come, then the gospel won't be why you stay. It just won't be. There's nothing wrong with doing some things from time to time, perhaps to, to get people in the community involved. With certain, th- But at the same time, if the gospel message is not at the core of what I'm doing, then the gospel message won't be why I stick around. I'll move on for some relevance somewhere else. And again, as a culture, I think we're seeing this permeate into, into denominations, and even, but even into the Lord's church. There was a quote I read not that long ago. I forget who the gentleman was. <clears throat> But he was talking about society as a whole. He said religion, and, and this was not a member of the Lord's Church. In fact, I think this gentleman was, was Jewish. Religion is the thing that has fallen apart the most because of the malfeasance of churches, synagogues, and religious leaders who have run away from the political fray. They have made their religion less relevant to daily life. They've decided that religion has nothing to say about major issues in politics and culture, but rather that basically... Religion is there, so you can go there and hear somebody play guitar or say a few words about the Bible that have no actual relevance to anything beyond be a nice person, which you could really just get from reading Aristotle. And that's what we've turned worship into, culturally. 
And if we're not careful, we'll allow that to permeate into the Lord's church because, again, it's safer, it's less offensive, and we talked about that last week. It's less abrasive, it feels better. I want to go worship at that place where, you know, I feel good when I leave, I feel spiritual, I feel uplifted. There's another quote, this gentleman is one of these founders of one of these mega churches. And this is what he said. This is an interview that I saw online at one point in time a few years back, and I've kind of had the, the quote tagged since then. There are two parts to church, he says. There's what we say, and there's how we say it. So there's message, and then there's method. In my opinion, too many churches have made method holy and message unholy. Now, to a certain extent, he, he probably has a point. We've made the method in which we go about doing things much more holy, so to speak, than the message that is the word. Okay, he continues. So we say these methods have to endure for hundreds of years, so we have to sing these same songs, sit in these same chairs, and do it the same way, but they're letting their doctrine evolve with time. Again, oh, he makes some valid points. We can't let our doctrine evolve with time. We talked last week about how God's word is unchanging. It shouldn't be about doing, okay, I can't say, well, we need to stick to this traditional thing that we did if I let my God's word evolve. But he continues, we, at his particular organization, think the very opposite. I think message is holy. I think it endures forever. God's word is holy and never changed. Again, we're in agreement. Methods can change. We don't have to do it the same way. We just have to believe the same thing. And he's starting to unravel here at the end. And this is what he says. Is there a better way to communicate it? Is there a better way to reach people? The goal is not to be right. It's to be effective. And now he's lost me. I don't want to be right and no one wants to come. I want to be effective. I want to be right but I want to do it in a way where people are drawn to it. Okay, again, he made some points I agree with. But he starts to unravel here at the end because here's the problem. The goal is not to be right, it's to be effective. Here's the thing, brethren. The goal is to be right because right is effective. Plain and simple, it just is. Right is effective. It always has been effective. It's unchanging. We've talked about that. But the problem is, and the reason we say it's not, is because we have changed our worship from God-centered to man-centered. So now right isn't effective anymore. Because right is, well, that's not right for me. So therefore, no longer effective. Regardless of whether or not it's right for God. Again, this is not new. You look at Matthew chapter 15 and verse 9. What does it say there? In vain they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This wasn't written 10 years ago, it wasn't written 20 years ago, it wasn't written 5 years ago, or last week. Written many, many, many years ago. And it says, in vain they worship me. Teaching as commandments the doctrines of men. They've changed worship from God-centered to (laughs) man-centered. Because, here's the fact of the matter, and we see it more so in our culture today than we have perhaps in years past. But it's not necessarily new, so I don't want to say that. The gospel is for sale. And it has been for a while. And I like sales just like you like sales. And when I go sales shopping, I want to find what I can find at the best price that gives me what I'm looking for. And it costs me the least. The problem is that's what we've done with the gospel. 
And I say we, I'm talking culturally within the world. I want to find what gives me what I want and costs me the least amount. What is it going to make me change? Is it going to make me be who I want? I read something just a few weeks ago. Somebody who was, again, used to be, you say, well, that's us and that's them. She used to be us, this person. And the title of her little article on her little blog was Why I Left. And she goes on to explain in very vague terms why she left, because, you know, she had done this, and well, you know, those people in that church, they were judging her. And they just, they wouldn't let it go. Apparently that was a real bad sin she made, and they wouldn't let it go. Well, it was. What she did was sinful. And she wasn't repentant of it, clearly, because you could tell by the life she was living. And she just couldn't understand why apparently, you know, people were just giving her dirty looks. Now, again, I don't know the whole situation. Perhaps those within the congregation she was in of the Lord's church should have handled their situation differently. I don't know. But at the same time, what she's eventually said is, I left because I can go get the gospel I want down the road, and it costs me a whole lot less. The problem, of course, is that it's not the real gospel because you get what you pay for. Okay, And I've got to understand that the gospel asked me to do certain things, and it's powerful, and it doesn't change. We look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is powerful. It is living. It is unchanging. It doesn't change over time. Continues on. And it doesn't change especially to the way that we want it to, to make it fit our doctrine. We look at Psalms 100 and verse 5. The Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. It's the same truth that was preached then. It's the same truth that's been preached leading up to now. Every generation. Every generation has learned the same truth. You know, I was asking at one point in time, my grandmother. I was asking my grandmother, who's a faithful member of the Lord's church. You know, at one point, you know, I grew up, my parents were members of the church. They brought me. Their parents were, but I mean, at some point in time, I assume, somebody was converted with the word, with the gospel. Well, my grandmother's parents were. There There was. This was the starting point. And it's interesting to think about that the same realization that they came to in my, my lineage, to make it personal, years ago, is the same gospel that I eventually came to accept. Because it hasn't changed. It's been the same the whole time. It's endured to every generation in the exact same way. You look at Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. It leads to salvation. When they believed Philip and they preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Salvation. It's interesting that if you read, if you continue on in Acts 8, and you read Philip and the eunuch there, and, he, and he's, of course we know this account, Philip talking with the eunuch, and he says, at, some, at one point in time there it says, and then Philip, after they had their little discussion about his confusion, and then Philip preached unto him Jesus. That's all we know that Philip preached. That's all, that's all we know. But then a few verses later, what, the eunuch says, well, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Well, if you believe, you may. You notice the result there. You notice the result here in verse 12 of chapter 8. You notice, Philip, what did he do to him? Well, he preached Jesus to him. Well, what is that? Well, it leads to salvation. And we know what it is. We see other accounts. 
But it's the same. What Philip preached to the eunuch there in Acts chapter 8 is the same thing that you and I preach today. It's unchanging. We don't, get to, we don't get to mix and match it to be what we want to be. It is our rubric. John chapter 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. I'm a school teacher. Every now and then we give out some projects. It is helpful to the students if you give them a nice little rubric when you hand them their projects so they can know how they'll be great. They like that. They know if I do this, I'll get the total amount of points for this section. And if I do this, and I'm going to slack a little bit here because I don't feel like doing that part, and I just know it'll be minus 10 or whatever. They know their rubric. They know how they're going to be great. All right, God's word is that for us. We know how we're going to be graded. We know how we're going to be judged. It's right there. And he says that. The words which I've spoken, they're going to, they're going to judge us. What we see within the scriptures will be our judge. And I don't get to make it up. The kid can't take the rubric that I give him and say, I know that it says this. But let's be honest. I think my idea was a little better. It's not, it's not going to work. They're going to really try hard, but it's not going to work. The same applies for us here. The word is our rubric. We're going to be judged by it. We don't get to change it. We can't allow the culture to affect us in a way that changes how we worship in order to be relevant. Because the fact of the matter is, it's not relevant. Relevant is, what relevant worship looks like is coming together to worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Because that's what's required of us. And here's the thing. And we saw an uptick in this during the pandemic. I'll be honest with you. Okay. It was there, but I think the pandemic, and and the pandemic had a variety of of different problems, obviously. But we saw this happen. Okay. Where we, we, and I say again, we broadly here, shifted to this focus of best we can. Okay, where we said, listen, it's it's a worldwide pandemic. None of us have ever done this before. It's brand new. It's brand new. And it was. And we were trying to figure some things out, and some things were touch and go for a little while. How long will it be this way? When will it last? I think back the other day, I was telling some colleagues the other day, we literally left on a Friday from school, and we just didn't go back. The weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. Normally, Memorial Day is the start of summer, and I've got to find a way to entertain a four-year-old until the next school year. By the time we got to Memorial Day that year, I was already two months of entertaining. I was out of ideas. I had nothing else. You can only go to the creek behind the house so many times. So, I mean, it was strange. But at the same time, sometimes I think we leaned on that whole best we can crutch a little bit. During that time period, and again, this was something that I just kind of earmarked and saved at one point in time. This was somebody that wrote in some sort of blog, different person that I mentioned before. Now, this person at one point in time was a member of the World Church. Now they're somewhere else. They go to a different denomination because, again, the gospel's for sale. And we wanted to find it elsewhere. And in their little blog post thing, this is what they wrote. There is something, I don't know if they use the word special, but that just feels good about, and I kid you not, taking a bite of a Cheez-It and a sip of Gatorade 
to commemorate our Lord's death. And I know God honors that because we're doing the best we can with what we have. Now, some of you may roll your eyes. You think, that is, that is insane. Well, we know that we can read in Mark 14 about the things we're supposed to use for the, the Lord's Supper to commemorate our Savior's death. And it's certainly the bread and the funeral of the vine. It's, it, they're not, then it's, the bread is not of the cheese variety. It's not. And I don't know of any Gatorade that is a fruit of the vine. I haven't found one yet. But we said, in this instance, and again, we, doing the best we can. So God honors it. And I know that. I know we, she said that. I know God honors that. Because we're doing the best we can with what we have. But we're not. A, we're not. We're not doing the best we can. B, we have other means in which we, we live here within this country. In all cases, it was waste. Even in a, in a lockdown scenario, they would deliver your groceries to your house. There was ways to get other things. I know we started it during that period. We hadn't quit yet. So there was other ways and means to do those things, first and foremost. But second, God doesn't honor our best when it's contrary to what he commands of us. He doesn't. He doesn't honor that. I can't ever say, well, I I did my best, and I know that God honored that because it was my best. Well, is it what God commanded of me? Should be the question. If the answer is no, then, well, God, God doesn't honor my best. And you don't have to take my word for it. There's examples of this. Look at Genesis 4, for example. You have Cain and Abel. And they're both going to give a sacrifice. And Cain is, of course, he's, he's tilling the ground. He's got these vegetables. I don't know exactly what Cain's sacrifice looked like, but I bet it was a pretty decent one in terms of fruits and vegetables and other things that he produced. It probably looked pretty good. It was probably an impressive-looking sacrifice of fruits and vegetables. The problem was, that's not the sacrifice that God commanded them to give. So he can't say, well, God, I mean, that's, I did the best I can. I gave you the best of my, my fruits and vegetables there. Well, you may have, but guess what? It's not what I asked for. And I don't get to say, Cain, you're right, and I'm sorry. God's not saying that. You're right, and I'm sorry you did your best, and I should have appreciated your best. Because, again, your best is not what I asked. And we see God did exactly that. No, Cain. And, of course, Cain's mad because Abel's got the good sacrifice. Well, Abel didn't go above and beyond. Abel just did what he was told. He did exactly what he was told. I can't claim, and here's the other thing. I can't, how can I claim, let's put it that way. How can I claim to love God and then worship him in a way other than he demands me to? Because here's the thing that we forget. Again, culturally we forget this. Because again, culturally we like to talk about the loving God and the merciful God, and he is certainly both of those things, and I'm thankful for it. But he's a demanding God. He certainly is. He demands things. He commands things and he demands things. Always has. Genesis 4. And that's way back. He was demanding then. He's demanding now. And how can we say, you know, I love God, and then we worship in a way in which he is against the way he demands. You look in John 14, 15. Christ, of course, says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. 
In Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? How can, how can we say it? Well, you know, no, I love, I love God. I'm a Christian, and we use that term broadly. But then I worship him in a way that is against what he demands of me. Does that, and here's the thing. Does that make sense in any other relationship in life? It does not. And I've used this example before, and I'll continue to use it forever because it just makes sense. If I am constantly displeasing to my wife, me and her are not okay. We're not. We're not okay. Why? Because I'm displeasing to her. And if she's constantly displeasing to me, her and I are not okay. We're not just like, well, you know, we love each other, so we get by. No, that doesn't make sense. Everyone knows that. If my son is constantly displeasing to me, him and I aren't okay. I love him. I do. I love my wife. But we're not okay just because of that. Because of the relationship that we have between father and son. Because of the relationship we have between husband and wife. So why then? Why could I be constantly displeasing to God and he and I just be, we're just okay. We're okay. Because he loves me. And he's merciful. And you know what? I'm doing the best I can. And he knows that. But I'm not doing the best I can. Because if I was doing the best I can, I would be doing what God required. Because, again, he's required the same thing forever. It's not like he changed this. We've got the rubric. We know what we're going to be judged by. He didn't mix it up and say, oh, by the way, I'm going to change things now. We've had the New Testament for quite some time. It's been the same. It has remained the same. We've got to make sure that we worship him in a way that he requires of us. Again, this whole best I can thing popped up I think a bit more during the pandemic and we see other things that were pandemic driven and some great things we have in in this congregation here we have live stream and it's a fantastic thing it is it's wonderful my wife is home right now with our newborn and she's watching this on live stream she's been able to watch every Sunday that she's been at home with our newborn child that's great and there was a time period in which you couldn't do that you're home with your newborn you're just Somebody maybe will bring you the Lord's Supper and you can take it, but you, you can't be at least in spirit, quote-unquote, to use that word loosely, with the members there. The problem, however, is I think we have allowed things like live stream to let us fall into the best we can category sometimes, culturally. Again, this is a new thing, fairly new. So culturally, we've allowed this, well, I'm doing the best. You know, it was a long day at work. And I've got the kids. And they've got to get fed and ready. And there's so many things I do. So we're probably just going to stay home tonight, and we're probably just going to watch it on live stream. And it'll be fine because I'm doing the best I can. But is that the best we can, truthfully? Because I can rationalize it however I want to. And again, I assure you I'm not trying to attend and I'm stepping on any toes or upsetting anyone, but the fact of the matter is we need to be aware of the type of worship that we're putting forth because if the pandemic time period did teach us anything, worshiping at home is simply not the same. It's not the same. It's not. If you were like me, you were very when we could come back and gather together just because it's not the same. It was certainly better than nothing. That I appreciate it when we, again, we're in a time of very much uncertainty. What is this like? We've never done this before. It's brand new. 
and we're trying to be smart and we're trying to make good decisions and our elders are trying to make good decisions on behalf of every member here of the entire flock that they oversee. And so we made the decisions that we made. In that moment. But do we allow those now to to say, well, it's just I'm going to do the best I can and I'll just lean on it. I go on vacation. And once upon a time, if I were to go on vacation, I would go find a place to worship. But now, I'll just like watch the live stream in the hotel. It's back home. Again, you know, it's a Wednesday night and I'm busy and I got things to do. And so I'll just watch the live stream. And I think we need to understand and we can't forget what the purpose of worship is. Okay, because there's two things here. And I think, and I'll be honest with you, I haven't always looked at it from this perspective. One of them I have. But the second one, I haven't always looked at it from this perspective. And it helped to change my perspective. So maybe it'll do the same for you. Maybe you've looked at it that whole way the whole time, and this is nothing new to you. All right, number one, obviously, as we've already looked at, the purpose of worship is to honor God, to praise Him. That's why we gather together to do it. We sing praises unto Him. We come in before his throne and speak to him in prayer. We remember the death, burial, and resurrection of his son that gives us the entire hope of heaven. The perfect sacrifice that he gave. And we sit down together and we study from the word of God. We give of our means to the church, his people, his work, his kingdom. We do all of those things for what purpose? Well, we do it to honor God because he deserves that honor and he deserves that praise. Because worship is to be God-centered, it's not to be man-centered. So the methods of how I do it, yeah, they may not be holy, like the other gentleman said, but there is a rhyme and reason to it, because it's got to be scriptural. So to a certain extent, yeah, those methods may be holy, because they're in the holy word. But at the same time, okay, is worship here for us to honor God? Yes, without question. But similarly, it is for us to prepare ourselves for heaven. Because sometimes, again, and I've said this before, we have a misconception of what heaven is. And I don't mean this in a bad way, because we use words that that create this. And and these aren't bad words, like I said at the beginning, where we're misdefining them, because we're not misdefining them. We'll say they've gone on to their reward, to their eternal rest. Those are all true. 100% true. I'm not saying that when we say that, we're wrong in saying that because we're not wrong in saying that. Okay, but because of the connotation that comes with those words, sometimes we put something to them that is not what it is. And we see heaven, visually, as a place that is eternal vacation. Where I finally, like, my work on earth is done. I find, man, I have put in the work here for God. And finally, I get to go to heaven for eternity and put my feet up and relax. And subconsciously, sometimes I think we view it that way, just because of the words we use. And again, I'm not saying those words are wrong, because it is an eternal rest. It is an eternal reward for those that are faithful. But we need to make sure that that doesn't allow and and shape the way that we view what heaven is. What heaven is, is an eternity of worship to our God. We look in Revelation chapter 7, and I understand, you can turn there if you'd like, I understand Revelation what the book is, and that it's a book of, of a lot of figurative language and visions that John is seeing. But at the same time, we get a glimpse right here in Revelation chapter 7. I've always really, really liked this passage. A glimpse into heaven, if you will. 
through this vision that John is seeing. And again, there's some of the, the figurative speech here that, you, again, you could dive into. You could spend a whole other class on. But you'll get the gist of what is being discussed, what is happening here. Okay, if you look in John chapter, I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. <laughs> After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped. God saying, Amen. Blessed in glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor, and power and might, be our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where do they come from? And he said, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. They're worshiping is what they're doing. They're worshiping God. It's an eternal worship to God. It's not, it's not I put my feet up and I just get to relax now. So why do I come here to worship with the saints? It's to honor God, yes. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. But it's also to prepare me for heaven. Because that's what I'm going to do for eternity. That's what I'm going to do for eternity. And it's interesting to read you two quotes here from another gentleman again. I read these somewhere along the way. But think about it like this. The really simple truth of the Christian walk and of salvation. Christ is there for anyone who really wants him. Heaven is open to anyone who actually wants to go. But we only want to go to heaven if we want a life that is completely consumed by Christ and nothing else. If we want a life that's only partly Christ, we don't want heaven. Think about Luke chapter uh, 9 and verse 62. No man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. I can't, that's, that, I'm partly Christ. It sounds good, but I also want a little bit of this and a little bit of that. The same gentleman has this quote continuing. If all the things that are purely about God in this life are dull and uninteresting to us, and all we do is bide our time until we get back to the TV, then heaven would be torture. There would be no leaving God get back to the TV. If, if it would be only God always. If we find little appeal in spending even a few minutes with God now, how can we expect that we'll find any appeal in spending infinity with him? This is the problem with people who say they don't pray, attend church, or read scripture, but go on walks instead, or spend time with their families, or go to the beach, and that's where they, that's where they quote, unquote, find God. It's true. God can be found in all those things. But you can also enjoy them without thinking about God at all. There are only a few activities in life that are purely, solely, and inevitably about God and God only. And those are activities that many Christians enjoy least of all. Most of us can't stand to worship the Lord unless it's in the context of some relaxing and entertaining recreational activity. And yet we still claim to desire heaven. Because that's what heaven will be. Worship. And so when I ask myself... Do I really? It's been a long day. It's been a long day. 
long day at work, it's storming outside, whatever it may be. Maybe I need to, do I really feel like getting my stuff together and going to Bible study tonight or to worship or to whatever? My question I need to ask myself really is, how bad do I want to go to heaven? Because if I want to go bad, and I, I, let's take a straw poll, everyone's going to say, yeah, I'd like to go. That sounds better than the alternative. How bad do I really want to go? Do I want to go bad enough to prepare for it? How can I claim that I want to go to heaven? And then worship is just a secondary thing. It's just something I do if I have time. And yet I say that I want to do that for eternity? And I pretend to mean it? That's what our culture tells us. Worship is just there. Bell's going to catch me in a minute. But, I mean, again, I'll credit my parents. When I was a kid, and I won't have time to tell this whole ordeal, but, you know, our makeup games for our Little League was always on Wednesday nights. I appreciated our park didn't schedule games on Wednesday nights, but makeup game was always Wednesday nights. And it never failed that when there was a rain out, I was not happy on Monday night when it rained because I knew inevitably that we would be playing on Wednesday and I knew inevitably that I would not be playing. And I really liked playing baseball. It was more fun to me than coming to Bible study when I was seven. It was. And my parents brought me, and I remember somebody told me, even in high school, Somebody, a friend of mine asked me, hey, you really think God's going to continue to hell because you missed one service? One? On a Wednesday night? But that's not why you went. It's not why my parents forced me to go. My parents forced me to go, one, to show me the the things in life that matter priority-wise. And two, so they would say, listen, one of these days, Lord willing, you're going to desire to go to heaven because you're going to understand this God's word. And if you're going to make that claim that you desire to go to heaven, you need to understand what that entails. And it's about worshiping properly. It's about worshiping every opportunity that you get because why wouldn't you want to do that if you claim to love him? Why wouldn't you want to worship him all the time? Not, oh, just let's make it entertaining. Let's make it about me. Let's make it fun. Let's go find a gospel that's a little bit more my speed. We can't let that culture influence us here okay and it does sometimes unfortunately sadly it does because sometimes you say well that's them and we're us a lot of them used to be us and if we're not careful we will become them if we lose focus of what's important and the purpose of things so ask yourself that question if you don't already when you maybe you're you know the devil's getting you a little bit he's tempting you you know, we're here, or we're out this way, or we've got some things going on, and you could miss probably tonight, it's not the end of the world, or you could not go this time, or this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go do something else. Should I go, or should I worship? How bad do I want to go to heaven? Because if I claim to really want to go, and I really mean it, there's only one place I should be. The bell's going to catch me, but our culture has made worship man-centered. We've got to keep it God-centered. Our culture's told us that we need to do the best we can. We've got to do what God requires. Our culture has told us that worship and heaven aren't connected, and nothing could be further than the truth. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our waiting can't be idle. Our waiting should be active. And we should be worshiping God to honor him in the way that he demands us to. Thank you for your time, your time and attention. Hope you enjoy the class, Fortifying Our Faith.
Again, as Mark mentioned, we'll probably revisit it at some point in time. Uh, but starting next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll be moving to a different topic. So thank you. Appreciate it. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.